Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. All right, all right. Pat, what is going on? Man, I'm just recovering from our Flanders Red blind taste test yesterday. Ooh, I think you tried to kill us. <laughs> well, it's a bit of an overload on the palate, but uh, there's so many good Flanders Reds, it was tough to pick a favorite. You know, I maybe got a little ambitious when I put 10 beers in the tasting. By the way, if you're looking for the results of that, check out the Pat Spines blog, and that should be up around the time this podcast comes out. But for today's podcast, we're going to stay in the land of Belgium, right? We're having Dan Reeve back again. We got to talk to him in June of 2020 about Guz. He is a huge fan of Belgian sours. We've got him back. We got to talk to him actually when we were still deep into quarantine. And now having him back to talk about fruit lambics. An elegant style, a beautiful style. A little warning for listeners out there. Pretty early on, I'm going to hit into a rather lengthy diatribe about the science of lambic fermentation and the microbiology of it. I think it's quite necessary because we didn't dive that deep into the fermentation on the last one. So without further ado, let's switch over to our conversation with Dan. Yes, I am here again. Thanks for having me back. I must have done well the first time. Yeah, I mean, I think let's get into it. And one of the interesting things and... uh, the biochemistry of alambic fermentation, the very complex chain of fermentation that goes on in lambic brewing. You know, to put your beer into a cool ship, and so we haven't really talked that much about what a cool ship is, but it's just a wide, shallow pan that maximizes the surface area of the beer and allows the airborne yeast and bacteria to have access to it. So you're inviting a lot of things in, and a lot of the of the microbes that land in your beer are are not what you really want. So that comes back a little bit to the turbid mash, making it, you know, not super nutrient rich so that just anything can grow. But as I understand it, the first thing that takes off is a kind of a group of bacteria called enterobacter, which is largely responsible for spoiling food. So this isn't really a good thing, but it does create a little bit of acid that becomes useful later on in the process. And then you get a little bit of uh, Saccharomyces. So this is what all of the beer that we know and love is generally brewed with the Saccharomyces. So we could, we could call it an ale yeast. I think that term actually just means sugar eater. And actually that gives you a clue why you might want to site your Lambic brewery near fields of fruit trees. Because of course the fruit has a lot of sugar and this kind of yeast likes to live on fruit. So when the fruit falls off the tree and is on the ground, it'll have easy access to sugar. And in that Saccharomyces fermentation, you get the alcohol, largely. Then what takes off is the different lactic acid bacteria, like lactobacillus and pediococcus. And some of these are the same things that make yogurt or make sauerkraut. And those create this kind of lactic acid that is largely responsible for the tartness or the sourness of a lambic. Also, this is just from what I've read. I, I don't have any firsthand experience of it, but the beer in this stage from, let's say, a month to six months, they say is kind of ropey. So it's kind of like, I guess that means 
I don't know, Dan, as someone who's made sour beers, could you, do you see that? Could you describe ropiness in a beer? It doesn't sound pleasant. It sounds a little bit like <laughs> snot or something like that. My homebrew is basically in a dark corner of my basement, so I don't <laughs> get a whole lot of look at them. That's, I, I that's wrap, wrap them all in towels so they stay a little <laughs> bit warmer. And then, uh, so I haven't seen the ropiness, no. So, like, even though this beer tastes beautiful and refined after, you know, multiple years of fermentation, if you were to drink it at six months, it, it might be disgusting. And even American brewers I've talked to who make sour beers, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I just tasted it. I'm like, it's just not ready. I mean, it's not going to be good, and they just have to have patience. But the final stage of the different fermentation processes is then when the Britannomyces comes in. And the Britannomyces does a few things. I mean, that's what's giving it that barnyardy flavor that we've talked about already. That's when you bring in the funk, Pat. Mm-hmm. You, <laughs> that's right. It brings in the funk. The other thing Britannomyces does, which is pretty important, as I understand it, is Pediococcus in particular produces a lot of diacetyl. So if people don't know, the diacetyl gives it that artificial butter flavor. And, you know, that's not good in a sour beer. That's not good in any beer. Welcome in a Chardonnay, but, but not much else. Mm. Yeah. And so I think the the Brett cleans up the diacetyl and probably some other things too. And, and it adds that funkiness. And it also takes the acid that the lactic acid bacteria is made and the alcohol that the Saccharomyces is made and combines those two to get, you know, these esters that give it that fruitiness. So that's why, you know, it's not ready until you've had at least probably a year aging in the barrel. Have you ever had the beer... Uh, nightmare on Brett from I want to say it's Crooked Stave. Crooked Stave. I have had that yeah. beer. Yeah, yeah. That that was when anybody asked me what Brett tastes like. I always say try that one because that <laughs> is about as Brett as you can get. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is pretty Brett Ford. I, I will say that guy who started Crooked Stave, Chad Jacobson. I mean, he, as I understand it, he did his master's degree on studying Brettanomyces. And so I think that I think that Crooked Stave in general is, I mean, Brett is the focal point of that brewery. Well, I'm glad to know my recommendations are backed up. (laughs) (laughs) You are spot on. You are spot on. Good. We've got a lot to talk about, but we might as well be drinking beer while we're talking about it. I'll start, and what I've got is a beer from Cantillon, a creek. Creek, of course, is the Flemish word for cherries. 100% lambic bio. So one of the things we didn't talk about in the last episode is that actually Cantillon uses organic ingredients. That shift to organic ingredients at Cantillon was just in 1999. So historically to that, there had been no changes at all at the Cantillon Brewery since 1900, which is pretty interesting to know they've had the same process for 120 years i wonder if that has anything to do with the popularity increase in the revenue stream yeah dan what are you drinking now i am going with the dry fontanine creek so another cherry beer it was bottled on july 26 2018 it is 6.6 percent abv and it is 
as red as cherry Kool-Aid. That's Mark, awesome. what about you? So this podcast, I'm drinking Cantillon also, Pat, and having the uh, Rosé de Gambrinus, and that is 2017, and this is actually also a blend of Lambics and with raspberries. From what I understand, there's just under a half pound of raspberries per liter in this beer, which is a lot of raspberries. Yeah, yeah, that is a lot of raspberries. It's interesting that they don't call it the Frambois, like you would probably see of uh, some of the other Lambic brewers. That's right. And from what Mm -hmm. I understand, and I haven't opened this bottle yet, unless I had it on the tour at Cantillon, which was five years ago, and I may have had more than one beer, Pat. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I hope you did. Yeah, indeed. So if I did have it, then, um, you know, we'll see how it goes on this bottle. But one thing to note on this, I believe they call it the rosé because it is not in, and the Lindemann's Frambois is just deep purple red. I mean, it's so almost thick with color. Whereas from what I understand, this has a more lighter hue, hopefully not as cloyingly sweet as the Lindemann's. So I'm excited to try this beer. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Yeah. I would second that. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Who's starting off this round? I think the guest must go first. Sure. Well, like I said, as I was pouring it, this Dry Fontaine Creek beer is, you know, as red as cherry Kool-Aid would be. It would probably stain a shirt pretty easily. <laughs> the aroma on it is, again, it's it's sour, but it's just jammy cherry goodness. The head on it sticks around for a little while, and it also has a pink hue to it. This is almost like a marzipan cherry or like a pie-filling cherry flavor. And then there is some funk in it, and it kind of sounds weird, but I would say it's almost like mushroom funky. Do you get any of that in yours? Mm. I'm not getting the mushroom funk, but I completely get what you're saying about the marzipan Kind of, I think that's that almond sort of note that mm, I think yeah, comes yeah, in part yeah. from the pits of the cherries. And then definitely when I smell it, it does smell like a cherry pie, but a mm. kind of a funky cherry pie. Like not the kind of cherry pie that your grandma would make, but maybe the kind of cherry pie that your you know sort of cousin who lives in New York City might make. Well, I know a lot of people, and I'm not a wine connoisseur in any way, but a lot of people say wine is jammy, and I would say this beer is jammy. Yeah, I get that. Would you say the acidity is, how would you say it compares to the the goose that we drank on the last uh, podcast? See, I'm not getting nearly as much acid out of this. I think the fruit sort of moderates that in some way. Could be. I've heard, and I don't know if this is true. Well, I know it's absolutely true that they put the whole cherries into the barrel. And I think they do that, you know, when the beer's about been in the barrel a couple of years, maybe about two years old. It probably varies a little bit, but you know they don't throw the cherries in until a lot of the fermentation's already happened. People say, "Oh, the the whole cherry pit dissolves," but actually, I don't know. I think that's an urban myth. I don't know what you guys think. Uh, I would wouldn't say that happens because if you read the back of the label on this, it says this particular one had macerated for six months and ten days. If you can get a cherry pit dissolve in six months and ten days, that's impressive. 
It is kind of interesting now, Mark, that they went as specific as six months and ten days. Yeah, really. Yeah, <laughs> could have just could just average that out, couldn't they? Called it straight yeah. six. Yeah, that is interesting. <laughs> well, the, you know, yeah. they want you to have all the intel. I am reading the back of my bottle here, and it does say, "This is the last sentence: to be drunk, preferably within ten years after the bottling date." So I guess maybe the fruit beers are not meant to be saved for thirty years, but only for ten or less. Well, mission accomplished. I will say, when I poured this Cantillon Creek, that it was actually kind of a visual spectacle because I only poured about half the bottle out. I probably got three fingers of head, you know, so it was filling almost half the glass. Like in a matter of 20, 30 seconds, you could just see it just dissipated and it just went back to like basically no head. Um, Mm. But actually, visually, it was kind of striking just to watch it. It is definitely red. It's kind of a crimson, but the the beer is really quite clear. I can see through it if I hold it up to the light. Initially on the nose, it was kind of it was kind of intense in I don't even know if I know how to describe it. Almost like there was a little bit of alcohol note in it, but that seems not right, but kind of an intense cherry note to it. And now uh, that has kind of settled down and I I'm, I'm drinking it. I mean, it's got that you know, that underlying lambic character, it's got that, that funkiness, it's, it's got the acids. It's, I would say, of comparable acidity to the goose. But on top of it, then you have that cherry flavor, a very nice cherry flavor, and, and almost also a little bit of something I might call like an almond kind of nuttiness that lies underneath it. I mean, I'm pretty sure that the cherries that are used by the lambic makers are these sour cherries they call charbic cherries, which were traditionally grown in that part of Belgium. That's interesting. What's the characteristic of those cherries? Do you know? Uh, they're red. But have you? They're eaten red, one? and they're. I have not. I have not. I mean, they're they're supposed to be sour, so they're not a sweet cherry. It's not the kind of cherry you'd make a pie with. Yeah, yeah. I actually found some of these cherries at the Worthington Farmer's Market once and put them in a homebrew that I have. No shit. That's cool. Tell us about that homebrew. I haven't tasted it, and it has been in a carboy for almost four years now. Wow. (laughs) But I'm a little afraid because it is ugly looking, and I don't want to poison myself. (laughs) Well, I'm not afraid. Uh, Anytime we want to test that. I, I've got a lot of uh, sour stuff sitting in, in glass that's waiting to be tried. So uh, we might cool. have to do another podcast on do we poison ourselves or is it delicious? <laughs> <laughs> what does it look like, Dan? Does it have um, a pellicle on it? Yes, yes. The pellicles on most of them have kind of dropped and now it's just kind of a layer that looks – it's not mold. I can tell you it's not mold, but it just kind of looks swampy. I see. What's your what's your basic plan for that? Now you, you're four years in, so yeah, I don't. Do you think that you ever one. will taste it? <laughs> I, I assume <laughs> I will. Maybe if I move houses, I have to get rid of it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have I've done a lot of uh, sour home brewing with mixed results. That's for sure. Have you ever tried to do a spontaneous fermentation? I have not. I think that's pretty hard. I mean, we were talking in the last podcast about. You know, is it the yeast that just floats in on the air or how much of the yeast is in the barrels, is on the beams of the brewery? And, you know, and I think 
by and large, the latter plays a huge role. So if you're just like banking on your backyard to kind of give you a lambic, that's a that's a pretty long bet, I think. Yeah. The Y yeast makes a Rosalaire ale blend, which yep. is supposed to be good for making lambic, and then they actually make a lamb one called lambic blend, and I've used both of those. Okay. Cool. What's your experience been? Uh the the lambic blend one actually turned out pretty good i wouldn't say it was lambic in any way shape or form but it was a decent kind of gold ale with some sour notes that are similar okay no i mean it it is kind of an interesting thing to try and make these sort of beers at home i guess you need to have some patience tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about how long you had to wait before it was actually a decent beer that one i waited about a year before i thought it was good enough to throw in a keg and carb up and Did you taste time, it along the way? Yeah. What would you compare it to? I'm I'm very interested in this. What do you mean by what would I, what I would compare it to? What other like a commercial beer or? Yeah. Why not? Oof, that is a good question. Like, what were there any characteristics that you had noted in beers that you had had historically? I guess the best way to say that. That's, that's nothing that's coming to mind at the top of my head. But if, if you can just think of a very basic sour. Golden ale. I mean, I don't have any other better way to describe that. Who makes a sour golden ale? Dan Reeve. Besides me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the other one that I didn't have a whole lot of good results was was the Rosalaire Ale Blend Yeast, which was supposed to be a copy of the Duchess de Bourguignon beer, if you've ever had that. Okay. It's uh, like a Flanders Red, isn't it? Similar to Rodenbach, right? Right, so I brewed a, a red ale, and then I put that in there, and then it just tasted terrible. Huh. Yeah. In in what sense was there vinegar? Was it uh, just? It was very. What? It was very nail polish remover ish. Ah, okay, yeah. I've never drank nail polish remover, but if you know that smell, <laughs> you can smell it. Yeah, that acetone yeah. smell. Yeah, it's a little rough. Yeah, and, so. and I think that comes from actually one of the esters as well. I mean, there's a variety of esters, and so. It's kind of one of these things where some esters is a good thing, but too much esters, and and then you get into that nail polish solvent kind of stuff. Which yeah, is I've unfortunately number, number had that happen to me twice. And one was on my attempt at doing a three-year blended goose. So I had three years into it, and then I tasted it, and it tasted exactly like that. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's, wow. It's wow. disappointing. For so, it, such disappointment. It was, because that one was actually in a – a barrel too. So I had it really trying to imitate what was going on without the wild part. And, uh, it didn't turn out. One, two, three, make it fun. Now, Mark, uh, tell us about, uh, that Rose Dick Ambrinus. Yeah. So we're getting away from the Creek. Uh, now from the cherries to the raspberries and the Canton Rosé de Gambrinus is, uh, this is a 2017 and I don't think we've really touched on ABV on any of these, but a pretty light beer, middleweight, like a five and a half percent. So not real aggressive, but th- I would say this beer kind of initially it did have a little gamey aroma, but which went away pretty quick. I would say the head really stuck around on this beer quite a bit, however. 
Um, oh, that's interesting because different than mine. Yeah, initially, but then it did it did start to fall down. But it was uh, it was photo worthy at first. It was very nice. It is a uh, rose color. It's not deep purplish red. You know, it's got a it's got a nice red hue. It's got a slight haze to it. I would say the aroma is kind of that raspberry lemon kind of some bready funk maybe even like kind of cranberry like if that you know puts in mind the tart fruit i would say kind of like a it smells of like cranberry and then i would say in flavor i'm getting get the raspberry kind of in like a sorbet way if it was like with some lemon if that makes any sense so kind of like a a lemon raspberry sorbet, I would almost describe it. Not very sweet, though. I would say probably taste is almost reminiscent of kind of a tart cranberry juice. That's really I interesting that's because I don't think any Lambic maker or blender does anything with cranberries. This does not have cranberries in it, but that's kind of because of the tartness. There's that perception. Now I'm like, somebody please do that. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and then I would say the mouthfeel is kind of light to medium. Raspberry, cranberry, lemon. It's very good. It would be a definite departure from the Lindemann's Frambois, for example, if that's what people are used to. And then you gave them one of these. It's a totally different beer, I would say. I think there's so much sugar in that Lindemann's Frambois that you almost just totally lose any existence of acidity in it. It just almost yeah. comes off as cloyingly sweet, which eh, there may be the right occasion where where that's a fun dessert beer, especially since the bottle size is not that big. But you sure in the hell wouldn't want to put down a 750 of it. <laughs> no. I mean, it does have an intense raspberry flavor. I will give it that. Yeah. So it does have its moments. But you're right. I think that Cantillon beer, I mean, it has... The balance of that sour, the fruity lemon flavor, and and the raspberries almost as as an accent rather than the dominant flavor. While we're talking about you know these fruited lambics, it might be a good chance to just kind of educate everyone on the different substyles of lambic. So, obviously, a fruited lambic is a is a lambic that's fermented, you know, over fruit, like we've just been talking about. And we just talked about both the Creek, the cherry beer, and the Frambois or raspberry type beer. And really, those are the two most used fruits. I don't know. Have you guys ever had a different fruit in a Lambic beer and you thought, oh, that's really good? Um, I have to say I have not. I've had the uh, Lindemann's Pesh, which is the peach. I don't note it to be as extremely sweet as the uh, Frambois. And then they've got that strawberry blend one, which is just even more ridiculously sweet than the Frambois. But I don't know. The Peche is kind of different. I mean, peach kind of has a a little lighter flavor. and, And most of the time, even if you make a peach beer, you probably should add some apricot to that as well because Peach just does not have a, a lot of noteworthy characteristic after fermentation. That's a good segue because my absolute favorite lambic that I've ever had is from Cantillon, and it's their Cantillon Foo, which is an apricot. Wow. Okay. If there's an option on the table of different Cantillons, that would be the one that I go to. Oh, man. 
And why didn't you mule some of that back for us, Dan? <laughs> I don't know how often they make it because it's never been for sale in bottles when I've been there to okay. go, but you could you could get it at the bar. Well, hey, always a reason to go back to Brussels. Yes. Yeah, when I visited, it was available in neither format. Yeah, but Cantillon oh, does nice. make a variety of styles, right? So what are some of the other mm-hmm. Cantillons that we haven't talked about yet? They have Iris, which is kind of like the fresh hopped version. Yeah. Uh, is that yeah, one? So in, that I've never tried that one either. I wouldn't say it's that much different than just Lambic. Okay. It's, I mean, it's in no way, shape, or form the modern day hoppy beer. It's not that at all. So Makes sense. Yeah. So I've had that one. They make uh, one called Lou Pepe, which is oh, right. yeah. just a goose, but it's not a goose as in the sense of blending one, two, and three-year lambics. It's just three lambics all from the same year. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just uh, two years old, that one, right? I, I'm not sure. That could be right. But I know they also fruit that one. Oh, okay. And those are some of the more sought after by the beer nerds are the fruited Lou Peppies. I could see that. Well, they're hard to come by, probably. Yeah, I can honestly say I've never had one. Now, this might be a good time to say, you know, what is the difference between what I might call straight lambic and goose? Does anybody want to take that question? So straight can- lambic is very young and very raw when it's not blended at all, not in the bottle. I know when I went to Cantillon, like, they had it on tap, and it was very flat. I thought it had a lot more gaminess to it, actually. And and also having not fermented down as far as some of the aged ones, it seemed like the mouthfeel was a little more full. Yeah, I think you hit on some of the key points. One, not blended. Gooses are always blended, I think. Two, very rarely bottled. So, you know, good luck going down to anywhere in the U.S. and finding it. And and three, there's you know there's very little carbonation. Although one of the things that's kind of interesting is I would kind of guess then, hmm, you know, part of the whole blending process is one of the key things about adding the beer that's only one year old is it still has some sugars left. So if you didn't add that, you wouldn't get any carbonation. So I, I wonder if the straight lambic, what age that is, and actually I don't know the answer. I thought it was kind of young because when we took the tour, Joan found that first taste very challenging. And that was the very young one that we had. And it was super hazy and still had a lot of those proteins that hadn't been broken down. Um, I'd be willing to bet that that first pour that you're talking about came from the gentleman I was speaking of in the first podcast. (laughs) Old guy with long hair. (laughs) He pours it out of a, uh, like a, big pot thing like a big ceramic pot that's right that is Mm -hmm. exactly how it went down for me as well i'm sure he's been giving that tour a while so i doubt Mm -hmm. he varies too far off script i can't think of the name of it but i know they also bottle a flat unblended lambic okay but it's it's aged i think but i just can't think of the name of it i could probably pull up wikipedia and find out but You know, the other kind of style, if you will, that we have not talked about would be a pharaoh. So a pharaoh, as I understand it, would be the lambic. This is the way that I read about it. So you take the lambic, and this is not sort of the blended goose. 
but alambic, and you, you add a little sugar to it before you put it in the cask. So it's almost like uh, there's some parallels to something like an English cask ale. It develops a little carbonation. It gives it a little sweetness so it's not quite so sour. I mean, apparently that was very popular uh, in the early 20th century in Brussels, but now pretty hard to find. I don't know. Have either of you had a faro? I think Linderman's actually makes one that you can get at any grocery store around here. They do bottle one. Yeah, that's right. I can't say I've ever had it, though. So I think I'm going to try that next time I go to the store. But I do wonder how similar that uh, bottled one is to the sort of traditional faro that would have been made. Kind of, It sounds almost like bottle carbonation or, you know, cast carbonation, like with some priming Mm. sugar to it. I think I also remember that sometimes they might take a little sugar and put it in the glass and then pour out of that pitcher the lambic right on top of it and then you almost muddle it or mix it up. I mean, you wouldn't have to muddle it because it would dissolve. But One other fruit one that I just came to mind, and it's one that... So I, we can say that Cantillon is beloved pretty much 100% by everybody who tries it and likes this style of beer. Now, they do make one with rhubarb that I actually didn't care for. Interesting. Okay. What was it called? It's called Nath, I believe. Yep. And it, I, I know other people liked it. I did not care for it. I thought it tasted very dirty. <laughs> rhubarb is a pretty hard fruit to, you know, pull the flavors out. I, I like rhubarb a lot. And of course it's, it's sour enough on its own, but I don't know. I would, I think it's pretty hard to put that into a beer. Yeah. There is a unique flavor that has the tartness of strawberry, but I think most, Ohioans know rhubarb as mixed with strawberry in a pie. So it's unusual to have straight rhubarb, but I think that's also like a younger blend as well. Oh, okay. I will say growing up, my grandmother, who was German, she used to have like a rhubarb patch and we used to eat rhubarb in all kinds of ways. So I still sometimes will just eat it like celery. But she also used to take a thing where she'd put rhubarb onto a baking sheet and she'd sprinkle some brown sugar on it and just bake it down. And also I kind of remember vaguely something like a rhubarb stew. But now I would have to say most people's experience with rhubarb is only mixed with strawberries and a lot of sugar. Yeah. Yeah. Now we haven't talked, we've talked a lot about Cantillon and we've talked about, uh, Dry Fontenin, but we, and we talked a little bit about Lindemann's, but, um, there are a few other uh, Lambic brewers uh, still around. Um, some of the ones that, that I can think of, there's uh, Girardin, Mortzabit, Detroque, Timmermans. And, and then we also have, there's also blenders, right? So the, the idea of a blender is they don't make the wort, so they don't do this whole turbid mashing, all of that, but then they take the beer and they do the aging, they do the blending. Maybe the best-known blender in the U.S., I would say, is probably either Tilkin or Hansen's. Do you guys have any experience with some of these other uh, Lambic brewers or blenders? I've had my fair share of Tilkin, that's for sure, because I'm a fan of most of the stuff they've, that I've had of theirs. Well, my glass is empty, and, and we've been talking for a pretty long time at this point. Hey, this has been fun, guys. Yeah, man. Yep. 
we'll uh, look forward to having you back at some point in the future. Talk about uh, Flanders Reds, for example. Yeah, um, I do like those. <laughs> I'd definitely be down. Anytime there's Belgian beer involved, you won't have a hard time dragging me out. As you could probably guess, I've got some stories of those too. So, <laughs> Right on, right on. Well, good talking to you, Dan. Thanks, guys. See you shortly. Yeah, in the future. Sorry. Have a great night, guys. Sure. Thanks for listening. <laughs>